0: Welcome to Running It Back, the lessons learned from sports and media podcast. Mike Palmer, joined as always by Tarlin Ray. Tarlin, welcome back to Running It Back, you know? Yeah, man. How How excited are you for this show? Today's topic.
1: Super fascinating topic. I mean, we promised to keep it light, short, concise, but we could probably go for hours. Complicated individual, we're going to cover. Yeah. Fascinating basketball player. Mm-hmm. So, really um, excited to run it back to Mahmoud Abdu. Raouf. Ma- Raouf. Uda, Abdul Rauf. Rauf.
0: Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. I remember Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman on ESPN, the big show back in the day. Remember Dan Patrick, I believe, or maybe it was Oberman, would say when he was getting hot, he would say, Rauf, Raouf.
1: Rauf Raouf Raouf is on fire. fire. I do remember and, that. Wow. The, Thank the, you for that.
0: <laughs> no worries. And then I heard another one, which was
1: Raouf. There it is. <laughs> also. But, formerly known as Chris Jackson.
0: Chris Jackson so is nasty. Can we spend a moment yeah, before yeah. we even
1: get to Raouf? For sure. You say practice? Before we get to Raouf. Chris Jackson, Yeah. probably one of the most dominant college players I've ever seen at mm. six foot tall. Still yeah. holds... The freshman scoring record, 30.2 points a game. Mm -hmm. As a freshman, his first game, I think he scored 13, was super excited about just being in college and contributing to a win. Yeah. And Dale Brown, his coach, longtime coach, took him aside and said, I don't ever want you to be excited about it. You you have a green light to shoot from anywhere. Yeah. So shoot. Yeah. So – and he did. Mm-hmm. And in his freshman year, he didn't have the benefit of two twin towers in one Shaquille O'Neal and Stanley Roberts. Mm-hmm. So bringing those two big guys on board, his scoring average went down to 28 from 30. Right, But still, he was, and Phil Jackson said it in the 2000s, and people went nuts. Yeah. I saw Skip
0: Bayless had many a hot take about Phil Jackson's hot take about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. But Raouf was, in college, the early version of a Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. And so Chris Jackson, just a fascinating, unbelievable talent and mm-hmm. could shoot. He was open. And I think the three-point line, I'm almost positive, was put in around the time that he was in college. In the college game, yeah. He was open as soon as he stepped in the gym and ready.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And he could make it rain, if
0: you will. And, and what drove that, I guess, a lot to talk about in terms of his origin story. How did he become the dominant player that he was at LSU? And then that's one aspect of his story is his, his humble upbringing and some of the challenges he overcame. One of the analogies he likes to use is just like iron needs to be exposed to a lot of heat and it needs to be pounded to turn into something beautiful, whether it's a tool or a building or something amazing. He does believe that humans need to be put through some, some real suffering and hardship to, to truly become what they, what they can be. He had a tough upbringing, was able to power through that to become who he was at LSU. And after his sophomore year went to the NBA and several interesting chapters happened throughout his NBA career, including his conversion to to Islam and including his decision to opt out of the national anthem, which is part of what ultimately drove us to run it back to this today because there's a lot about what Colin Kaepernick uh, was doing, in 2016 and the last few years, harken back to what Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, Chris Jackson, was doing in the early to mid-90s, 1996, was really when this whole thing really came to a head. A lot to learn about his basketball game, about what he was able to overcome, Uh, a lot to learn really about the importance of, of having a sense of mission and buying into your own conscience, and your own belief system over and above what the outside world is telling you to do. And he really lost his career by virtue of taking this stand in a way that, you know, a lot of people are lamenting what, what Colin Kaepernick's going through. You know, Mahmoud abdul Rauf really went through a very similar blackballing in the 90s. And because it was tied to Islam and because of a few other moving pieces, in some ways he never really came back in terms of his public perception so much to draw from here. As you were mentioning, we could go in myriad directions with this, but, uh, but
1: where, where do you want to go? What's uh, what? It's if- almost like that was word bingo. Myriad was. Nailed it. <laughs> so I think you got to go back to adversity. It's we, before we can move on to his career in the NBA. as you said, his number three pick, uh, he had Tourette syndrome. Right. And still does. Right. So a neurological disorder, which at times he is unable to have any control over his body, mm-hmm. tics, movements, mm-hmm. and was not diagnosed until he's 17. Yeah. So we talk about later in life when he basically stands as man on island because of his principles. He was also man on island that was mm-hmm. shuttled into special ed. hmm that was really good at memorizing, so he could read and memorize words, but didn't comprehend. Mm-hmm. Could not at times tie his own shoes because he could not get his body to start involuntarily mm-hmm. making movements. Because he had to do it perfectly. Because he had to, and and also times to just yell out "Whoops!" because mm-hmm. that was just one of his tics. Mm-hmm. So imagine no one, not a doc, no one being able to tell you what's going on, and you're right. so different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. But it's driving you in a way, which is why he has the second highest free throw percentage in the NBA in a single season at 95.7 and 90.5 for a career. Yeah. To your point, and, you know, it's the iron pounding iron. He had to learn who he was. Right. And didn't let that stop you. Watching old YouTube videos, I still remember. I mean, we all knew he had to write. It's just amazing what he's able to how He's able to channel and get control over, over that neurological disorder. Yeah, and
0: to me, that harkens forward to the disparities around COVID as well. The fact that there are disparities around who will get diagnosed with what what level of access you have to good healthcare, had it not been for his high school coach's wife, he wouldn't have even been diagnosed by the time he was 17. And the fact that His mom had taken him to the hospital, you know, single mother who was raising him and his brothers. And the fact that he was not diagnosed with Tourette's when Tourette's is relatively easy to diagnose. I mean, granted, this is back in the 80s and the 90s. Maybe some of this has gotten better, but also you got to imagine if he was from a more affluent background where he's going for regular physicals and neurological tests, some of this stuff would have been addressed early adolescence or earlier, and he would have had more of an opportunity to be quote unquote mainstreamed and and kind of understood as a quote unquote normal kid. Instead, I think he had to grow up with this sense of alienation and otherness that he wound up using as a motivator. He tells the story of when he was a boy, and he's a brilliant speaker. He's a motivational speaker now. He, He does a lot of work to try to get people on the right track. You know, he talks a lot about the importance of Islam to his own turnaround. But even before that, he he talks about how his mom would be leaving four o'clock, four thirty in the morning to go to her job. She had to be there by five AM. He would then, she didn't even know, but he would then, you know, 12, 13 years old, he would leave his house at 435, right after his mom left, go to one of the three courts in the neighborhood and just start shooting and working on his game. He talks about how when he was dribbling on his way out there, he would imagine that there was an invisible player, invisible man who was trying to get the ball out of his hands. And that sense of chip on his shoulder, that sense of adversity that he needs to overcome. I think there's a lot to be learned from that, where many of us may take for granted our quote unquote privilege. I think in some ways, as a reflective, he's now, I think he's around 50 now, as a reflective man later on in his life, he doesn't really lament that upbringing. Instead, he sees it as the the way in which he, he forged who he is today. And as someone who I know you were a bit of a shooter in your day, not to compare you to Mahmoud, oh, no. No. But, yep. but the level of practice and repetition practice. And, the fact that he wouldn't let himself leave the court until he swished with no rim 10 times in a row. I don't know if you did that ritual, but I did do a version of that ritual. I was pretty lenient. If it banked in, if it got a little sloppy, like if a made basket is a made basket for me, but there was for me to compare my shooting to, to, to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is, is, is kind of, it's kind of an atrocity, but Hey, it's a podcast. I can say what I
1: want. I'm taking a little tangent because you brought it up and then we'll come back to, Yeah. so Ray horse growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, King of my dad played in small college in Ohio, King of King of the suburban jumper. Ray horse is you take a shot, you make it. And then I make it, you got to validate. So there's no lucky shots behind the backboard. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to make it, you got to be able to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. But if you make the shot and it doesn't swish, You still get the ball back, but you got to make it as a swish. So Mm -hmm. I spent my life never wanting to touch the rim. Never letting it bank hit the rim and hit the backboard. That's a a make, but I need to make it the right way. Interesting. Not 10 in a row, but that's just how you get groomed to also shoot under pressure. You don't want to miss on your own shot. Right. And you got to swish it. Um, More. There'll be more. We'll go with more stories. Yeah, please. (laughs) So let's—if you think about Chris Jackson,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who all-world basketball player, poster child for Tourette's and overcoming adversity and mm-hmm. any other physical ailments. Just to be clear, he wasn't technically a poster child for Tourette's, to the best of my knowledge. He wasn't. <laughs> okay. He should have been. You meant you meant figuratively. I, I'm with figur- you. Figur- yeah. Figuratively. Also converted to Islam. That's mm-hmm. happened in, in, in our life, um, not, maybe not for us, but you yeah. know, Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, Lou Alcindor yeah. to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Dale,
0: Dale, Dale Brown famously gave him the autobiography of Malcolm X, I think his sophomore year, but his second year at LSU. And uh, he was kind of a lost he, – he, he was a little bit lost prior to that.
1: So he, and, he found himself. But the, yeah. the, the, the name change mm-hmm. doesn't really register. Still Mahmoud abdul number three pick in the NBA draft. Mm-hmm. And then he goes in the pros and sort of flounders a little bit,
0: relative to very high expectations. Relative to
1: high expectations, has a coach that really doesn't want to play the six-foot guard. He finds himself in the the bench. Coach gets fired. I think it's Dan Issel Mm -hmm. is the new coach and sort of gives him more free reign. Denver. Yep. yep. At Denver, a good Denver team. Dell Ellis. When you're watching some of the old, yeah, uh, McDice, McDice,
0: like, oh, I know all these I guys. I know it
1: all comes <laughs> back. Yeah, <laughs> the high top fade, uh, mm-hmm. the Gumby like Del Ellis hair. So he's he's sort of coming into his own. And then, it's it's almost the same thing that happened with with Colin Kaepernick, mm-hmm. who was silently having his own protests or mm-hmm. reflecting in a way or or kneeling or sitting when the National Anthem is playing. Mahmoud is not either, he's staying in the locker room. Right. Or... He would be stretching sometimes. He would just do things to not be
0: to standing. Not be outside. At, he's not standing at attention in particular. He's not lining
1: up for the National Anthem and yeah. standing at attention. Yeah. Which is, prior to that, is an NBA rule. Correct. And then a reporter four months in... Yeah. ...asks why. Mm-hmm. And then that's an open mic for him to talk about systemic oppression and yeah, yeah. his beliefs around Islam and the, yeah. what yeah. the U.S. is broadly doing around the world. Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A little anti-imperialist. Not a lot of NBA players, to my knowledge. Maybe they dabble with a little bit of Malcolm X, although I, I don't know about that. But then he was dropping Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn references, which... Those are progressive leftist intellectuals, so as someone who was misdiagnosed as special special ed in some ways, was brilliant, intellectually hungry, spiritually hungry human who's trying to find meaning in his life and becomes activated in a way that he wanted to make this a private act of conscience, to your point, where He did not believe in what the flag was representing. And in his conscience, he could not stand there and just quietly accept something that he felt was wrong. Instead, he felt like he had to take this very personal stand. But to your point, he did not necessarily want to be the spokesperson for anything. And then he became, by virtue of this interview, a bit of a scapegoat. He became someone who was pilloried in ways that were really hard. Eventually, it reached the point that, that his home in, in Mississippi was, was burned down because of the, the level to which there was a reaction against his professed problem of conscience, which is very consistent with some of the struggles that, whether it's Malcolm X or Muhammad Ali, he also referenced Paul Robeson, where there is a history of protest and of acting by virtue of your conscience, even to the detriment of your own financial well-being, your commercial opportunities. And he's very profound about it to this day, where, you know, he, there's no sense of regret. Even though he knows that he let millions of dollars go by virtue of expressing his elevated consciousness and and being true to his conscience, there's a lot to be learned from that. And I also would recommend folks who may not understand that history, he has been a little bit removed from the history books in a way that we wanted to bring him back. Because I think a lot of younger folks, even folks our age, may not remember him. If you weren't big into basketball, he wasn't so transcendent that everybody knew his name. He wasn't Michael Jordan. He wasn't Penny Hardaway. He wasn't Shaq. You know, he didn't have that commercial crossover appeal, but he had a crossover. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, a little side note, he was asked by Dan Lepitard's dad, who was your favorite person to crossover? What did uh, say? Scott Skiles.
1: And, and again, Scott Skiles of thirty assists, thirty assists. We're we're trying to run it back. So for
0: those of you who remember this period, you're welcome. Like now, Scott just,
1: Skiles had thirty assists in the game for the Lando Magic. Yeah, still not and, touched.
0: And Scott Skiles a whole other set of stories
1: to go into around that. But uh, let's let's just close the loop on on his basketball career. Sure, we do it tidy. Yeah, he gets a one game. He gets suspended by the NBA. Mm-hmm. David Stern is the commissioner. Mm-hmm. They come to some agreement where he stands, but he can have his head bowed in prayer. Mm-hmm. He makes it through the end of the Nugget season and gets traded. Mm-hmm. He goes to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. He plays with Hall of Famer Mitch Richmond. For those mm-hmm. who have listened to running it back, yeah. I was playing in a fantasy camp of Mitch Richmond, Byron Scott, when I ruptured my Achilles five months ago. Yes, I'm recovering. And then his career, he disappears for a year and a half, comes back for a year, and it's done. Mm-hmm. He then is playing overseas. In Turkey. In Turkey. For those of you who watch the big three, he yes. is still one of the, he's still dominating the big three. Yeah. Thanks to ice cube. He's still got that yeah. wet, that wet jumper. The jumper's wet. The jumper's wet. And most people said, you know, he can score and he's got a little he got a little gray in his, oh, yeah. in his goatee. And yeah. he's just taking people. A little, little salt with that pepper. A little salt with the pepper. And he's so he's still got game. But for all intents and purposes, his career is over. So let's just put a put a bow there. Although he did come back and play for the Grizz for the Vancouver That's fine. Grizzlies, I'm just letting you know it. I, I I did that a year and a half out. He came back. It was like yeah. one year, and it was over. Right, he was done. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to deal with uh, Mahmoud. What's fascinating because at the time, in the '90s, if you think about someone being afraid of losing their endorsement. It's the Michael Jordan era. Yeah. And we talked about in the last dance Mm -hmm. where Jordan said Republicans buy shoes too. Mm -hmm. So I know you saw a clip where Jordan said he needs to do what's right for him. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't an era where the athletes felt like they could have a social conscience. It was the Laura Ingram decade where they were just, they're going to shut up and and dribble.
0: Yeah. And to that point, the contrast I think with Kaepernick is that Kaepernick was activating other players. You know, Eric Reed was, was his teammate who joined him, and other players were beginning to express solidarity with what his issue of conscience was, which was police brutality and Black Lives Matter. And that's why Kaepernick, in terms of history, became vindicated in many ways in the last few years. Particularly this year, in light of George Floyd and the, the the reactivation at a massive scale of Black Lives Matter, Kaepernick, even when he was being blackballed by the NFL, in the NFL less progressive than the NBA, even in the the 90s versus 2016, I'd still say you know David Stern's 90s NBA was probably more progressive than Roger Goodell's mid 20 teens yep. NFL. But but the the difference there, I think, was that Kaepernick was actually getting people to follow him, which is another another thing about leadership that that I think is an interesting question, where when you're acting by virtue of your own conscience, and you're not necessarily trying to get other people to follow you and or other people aren't following you, in some ways, that's a more courageous act, where he was really just doing this because it was a personal act of faith. And... In some ways, there's a real nobility to what he was doing. Not to dismiss what, what Kaepernick was doing. There is a, a very warm relationship between the two of them. Kaepernick recognizes Raouf's ro- impact and, and his courage. And in some ways found inspiration from what Raouf did. Much as Raouf was inspired by uh, Muhammad Ali. Who, who Muhammad Ali went to jail, right? Three years of his prime. Which, you know, and, and again, and it was really the same idea of the, the military imperialism of the U.S. was something that Ali could not in good conscience support. And fast forward to the mid-1990s, and Raouf was activated in the same way. So I think it's just interesting. In some ways, it requires even more moral f- fortitude to do these things for your own personal conscience rather than to activate a movement. It wasn't necessarily that he was trying to get other people to sit out on the national anthem. It was just that for him, he was making this personal choice. I think you fast forward that now. He may he may wish he did more what Kaepernick did, where Kaepernick was actually trying to activate others. And any thoughts
1: on the contrast between the two of them? Just what you're hitting on, I think, and uh, I can say I've not been in that position where I'm man on island Mm -hmm. with the belief and just going to stand there sort of screaming into the wind and going Mm -hmm. against the tide Mm -hmm. it just you um, have to just have unbelievable fortitude belief and understanding and unwillingness to compromise Mm -hmm. despite what the losses are Mm -hmm. I think what's hard is you can say Kaepernick was doing it alone to start they say you're trying to bring people to the cause. It's true. I think what brought people to the cause was once again, another reporter, as he's been doing it for a few months, asked the question. Yeah. You got an open mic and you say, This is what I'm doing. They met with Nate Boyer. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was able to craft what was a better way to be respectful of the flag, mm-hmm. quote unquote, respectful of the flag, mm-hmm. and still have a silent protest. And that's yeah. what brought people to have a better understanding of what Kaepernick was doing and which was, which was come forward, taking, taking a knee. Taking a knee. So I just feel like maybe it's because of the nature of the way news is shared today and the internet mm-hmm. that I I just take a step back saying Mahmood wasn't trying to I think Kaepernick was doing a personal thing that mm-hmm. then sparked interest in others because yep. they had a similar feeling. I think Mahmoud just never had a chance to do that. Agreed. But I also think there's there's just an issue, issue is probably the wrong word, but there's layers, additional layers to Mahmud because of his religious affiliation yep. and what some Americans may think about the Muslim uh, Muslim territories or mm-hmm. the, the religion itself where, mm-hmm. where dominant Christian United States, it's the majority religion for mm-hmm. folks. Yep. So that layer on top of the systemic oppression, mm-hmm. it's hard to unpack, and so it creates. And then it's the flag, so it creates a lot of ways for you to be really yeah. pissed in my mood. Right. But if you and he's a complicated individual, and yeah. we think all, all all individuals we talk about are flawed. Right. So, but if you unpack and pulled out one piece of what he was talking about, and you literally just go 24 years, it's exactly what lit lit a fire. Mm-hmm. post-Floyd right now there was eight minutes and 46 seconds of a video mm-hmm. there what Mahmood was reading about is things that are happening in Saudi Arabia and other places that mm-hmm. we don't mm-hmm. see we don't have those right. images. we don't right. live with that we don't live a mortar fire right so it's not personal or real to us and it's just what we do as the greatest country in the world right right so I'm just bringing that together like I'm I they are probably as similar you know yeah Kaepernick wasn't bringing people together when he was wearing pig socks Right, right right. so yeah they there's similar probably very similar mm-hmm. it's just Kaepernick got pulled in a different direction right both ostracized but you didn't have a movement like Nike and others still figuring out a way to support Kaepernick yeah and the thing that Mahmood didn't really have and maybe not the same voice because it really was personal was being able to rally a bunch of people around him yeah to raise money, to then contribute money, to to attack the things that he thought were a problem. So Kaepernick, with Floyd right now, a lot of people say, put up a BLM and say they're going to change, but there's this movement, hire or wire, hire more black folks or wire money to organizations Mm -hmm. that support their causes. Mm -hmm. Um, Kaepernick did that. So he wasn't just all words. Mm -hmm. Mahmoud was and that's where you probably can juxtapose to was more just his belief in his words, but mm-hmm. he's a motivational speaker now, but he wasn't able to generate a movement or right. folks around. So he truly was on an Island. It's a hard place to be.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think he had a more abstract, more of an intellectual point, which is pursue. It's like a spiritual point, you know, pursue your own conscience in whatever that may be, you know, and for him, it was expressing his, his newfound spiritual, Mission that he found solace through Islam, and that was a very personal journey for him, and in some ways his his activation for people who may want to follow him would be to follow their own personal journeys, but it wasn 't necessarily a specific issue. He was trying to raise awareness of some of the aspects of our foreign policy as as the u s there There were some elements to it that I think probably had a little more to grab hold of. But then you you juxtapose, again, very much 20 20 years in the future. But then you look at Kaepernick, who is saying these issues are happening every day in the U.S. today. And it's about systematic racism and police brutality. There was a very clear message there. There was also a movement that was outside of himself that was already there. Black Lives Matter was happening. And he subscribed to that movement ahead of time and then went through, maybe this is the, the difference, went through some conversations to kind of shape how he could express himself. Famously talked to a Green Beret about kneeling as a way to express his, his really his sympathy for those who, whose lives had been lost, which is something that those in the military do do. do. They take a knee to respect those who, who have passed. And in, in this case, he was taking a knee to respect the, the lives of, of young Black men and women who had been lost at, the, at the, the hands of police brutality. But that message was very well expressed in a way that other people could conceivably buy into the movement. Although prior to George Floyd... Kaepernick had a bit of a renaissance, but not nearly to the level that that things have changed. You know, Nike famously did get behind him in advance of George Floyd. There there was a little bit of reclaiming of him. And then the NFL still to this day has not really come back around. There There was a show of a tryout for him, but there really wasn't an opportunity to get back into the NFL. He had basically sacrificed his career for this cause which was the same thing that, that Mahmoud Raouf did. And it's a time, I think, for all of us to be reflective on stuff like that, where, you know, how much is your professional life, how much is your life period, whether professional or otherwise, aligned to some issues of conscience? And then I would encourage folks to find more. We'll share more through 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 our social media. But there's a lot of really powerful conversations that he's had about how he couldn't, In his own good conscience, live a life where he did not do what he did, because he quotes the Quran. But you know, he basically says, "We have a very short time on this earth, and we need to be thinking about the legacy that we leave behind." And had he had he not protested, had he not sat out a game, had he not gone through the the struggles that he went through after these acts of consciousness, you know, he might have you know, been, a, been an all-star several more years. He probably could have had maybe just below Hall of Fame level career, who knows? But I, I don't think he regrets it. And Jeff Bezos famously talks about his regret minimization framework, where whenever making a decision in the here and now, you want to think about in the future, might I regret what I'm doing? And what I think is really profound about Mahmoud Raouf is that he thought about regretting not doing something. Frequently, we choose not to do something because we're concerned we might regret it. He was saying, had I not made a stand then, I would have regretted it later because I would not be the courageous, conscience-driven person that I am, even though he's a very humble public speaker. I think that's really telling for us in this day and age where we all have opportunities to, to quote Hamilton, not going to throw away my shot. He decided to take that shot at the expense of his career. And depending on how you think about it, you may say he threw it away. But I think from his perspective, I think he's very proud of what he did. And I think he he has no real um, regrets. And, and I think Kaepernick has said, expressed similar sentiment where despite all of it, the sense of, it's not even pride, it's more like fulfillment and actually feeling that you are a someone who had some, the courage to take a stand. I think that's something for all of us to, to be thinking about in this, this day and age. Any, any perspective there from you?
1: Yeah, so, and I think I'll close as you were talking, I was trying to continue to juxtapose and just think about the difference between Mahmoud and what happened with Kaep- Kaepernick. I think what he was protesting was massive. It's mm-hmm. like almost too big to consume. Mm-hmm. And probably too hard to figure out how to engage. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like reading the New York Times. It's a long read to mm-hmm. understand and unpack intellectually what Mahmoud was doing. Right. What Colin Kaepernick was doing, no less layered, but the kneeling and a hyper focus on police brutality
0: mm-hmm.
1: made the message super clear for any layperson, mm-hmm. whether you're going to be pissed off because you're kneeling and you're pissing on the flag Mm -hmm. or you understand it's not about the flag but it became something that's more consumable Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so as we often think about takeaways whether it's something acts of conscious or in your job Mm -hmm. if you can make whatever the thing you're doing building if you can just make it as easily understandable Mm -hmm. in the shortest period of time that is probably, if your ultimate goal is to bring people along, that is always going to be better than someone to have to piece through a lot of information to try to unpack. Right. Mahmoud, that's and this is going back to you think they're different, because Colin did go out and seek support and it became more of a movement. I think to your point, I'm, going to, I'm backtracking. He wasn't necessarily looking to have people repackage it for him. This is his six to seven years of studying and learning that this is his opinion and that's probably another reason why he just was completely ostracized and never made it back to the nba yeah because he wasn't looking to to compromise Mm -hmm. or or make his his broad thinking more concise if you really want to know what's going on we can go hang out as he used to do he used to invite strangers up to his room and just have conversations Mm -hmm. that's where he it was more, those intimate settings meant more to them than a single act of kneeling. So yeah, yeah. To a very fascinating, for me, a very fascinating person. I love seeing the basketball, everything that's going on around being more socially active, socially conscious, you think about racial oppression. You just gotta continue to look back at people that there are very few people in the world that sort of stand on island or really, to be looked at as a crazy person, but it's mm-hmm. something they believe. So yeah. I appreciate spending time, a little more time, looking into this, looking at them. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Themes about neuro, neurodiversity in there, the overcoming the Tourette's. Like the, there's a lot, a lot going on here. Uh, Mahmoud, an open invite to appear on a, a subsequent episode of, of Running It Back. And uh, you know, if you want help working on the the screenplay for your biopic, I, I think it might, it might have legs play and, himself because he still can hit the jumper oh my god he can ball too like he reminds me of the type of guy you would see at the y and he would just like out of nowhere got the old dude why oh is he
1: shooting god. from so far out? And,
0: and then and the last point on his basketball game we talked about that too like like nowadays like if you had a player like him in today's nba oh forget about
1: it because like someone no plays defense so he'd be he, he running around <laughs> he's folks.
0: fine with that and then the number of shots he took with his foot on the like he would get benched just for shooting too many sh- three pointers, where his foot's too on many the line. long twos, too many long. Oh twos. my god! So anyway, this is why we love to do this show. It's it's definitely taken me back to the '90s, and in a good way. And there's lots of lessons to be learned. He or she or they who forget history are, are doomed to repeat it. So it does feel like a little bit of respect for that history made Kaepernick better. And and it's definitely something we're going to try to do on this show. Continue to, you know, take us back to, to the golden era. Uh, and golden eras to understand lessons to be learned. Uh, Tarlin, as always, uh, fun time talking to you about this. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Subscribe, share the show with your friends, engage in the conversation. I'm sure this is the type of show that folks are gonna have reactions to. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon on Running It Back.